The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Den Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com. You guys go to denanywhere.com now, no matter where you live in the world, and you can take our classes virtually and live. Go to denanywhere.com and sign up for just $29.99 a month. You get a limited access to our classes with over 150 a month to choose from. Plus, most of them are archived, so if you can't make the exact time, you can catch them later. We still also have our workshops and our certifications now all accessible to you no matter where you are. Go to denanywhere.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tali, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. And I am here with Amy Elkins this week. I love her and I love this episode. She's the president of Media and Marketing Innovation at STX. Huge company. She's part of actually the founding group and she is so impressive in her career. And also, what's so fascinating about her, at one point, she tipped the scales at 300 pounds. And now she actually went on Revenge Body, lost all this weight. But as we all know, it's not just about losing weight. It's about uncovering the layers that you chose not to accept about yourself. And one of the things I really love about this episode and kind of digging into all that is this idea that you can have so much perfection in one area of your life, or you can be kicking ass in one area of your life, or an area people look at you and just wish, God, if I could only have my shit together like that. But then in another area, it's so difficult for you to keep it together. And I know we can all relate to that because if we're all honest with ourselves, usually there's a part of us out of balance. And so that's what I love about this episode. Um, It's kind of that idea of how you can start to honor your whole self so that it all does come into balance. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. I feel like it's when I heard your story, I was like, what? We have to talk because you are such a beautiful example I feel like of what we do at the den and what I want everyone at the den to do, which is like really go through all those layers of the shit we've put on ourselves to get to the truth of who we are so that then you can start blossoming from that point. And it feels like, and I can't wait to really get into it and hear more about your story from like a personal perspective, but it feels like that's where this journey kind of began for you a little bit. Do you feel like that where you got to know yourself in a different way? Yeah, I almost feel like I was like incredibly late bloomer and that I was going through life as I thought I was supposed to without really knowing anything about myself. Mm. And and what I did know about myself, I think, were a series of untruths. And so I it, you know, part of my journey is like you said getting to the bottom of the bottom of the lie so that I could find myself. So wait, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause that's interesting. So what were, let's say the lies, what, were, what did you think were the truths of who you were that really weren't you at all? So a lot of it was related to my career because I, 
was very ambitious and I, I put a lot of focus there. Um, but but uh, was rooted really in an imposter syndrome that I was sort of a country girl. I was not, I didn't have any affiliation in the entertainment business. That I wasn't the smartest in the bunch. Um, that I didn't have a history in the business, and so all of these things combined really made me feel like I, I was not as capable. And, but the evidence didn't marry that. The evidence was that I actually was a strong performer, that I brought new ideas to the table, that I was having a huge business impact, but I had sort of taken my past history and maybe what I thought others thought of me and I had applied that. And I think some of that narrative actually drove me to be more um, exceptional in, in, in parts of my career, but other parts of it really held me back and, and gave myself a ceiling in some ways um, because I just didn't think that I deserved it. So I, so I had to kind of break that down. And that's why I'm very much into sort of evidence-based understandings hmm. because you can't debate them. When I, when I ask myself, did you do this in this job? Did you yield this result? Were you effective here? Did you build meaningful partnerships here? Were you a great contributor here? And when the, all of the answers are yes, then I have to tell myself I'm capable and I deserve this. So when did you start looking at yourself with evidence-based research? Like when did you actually start noticing that you were executing in ways that you might've been telling yourself you weren't? I think it was, I think it was probably in the last five years, probably in this recent position, because I was, in, you know, part of the executive team. And I always felt like maybe when I was more in middle management, that the executive team that it was sort of like the wizard, <laughs> like there was a lot happening there that I just didn't understand. And as I got closer and I had more access to decision makers and the C-suite, I realized that I could keep up hmm. and that it wasn't mystified. It kind of broke down the mysticism. That's the thing. When you bring access to people and collaboration, uh, then, then you can really see you know, who was it? I just read somewhere that quote. Was it Michelle Obama? Someone just said they were asked, did you get nervous when you found yourself at the tables with all these like impressive, smart people? What would you do? Did you get nervous? And how did you handle it? Who said this? And the response was, once you're there, you just realize they're not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> and that's I was exactly how I felt. That's exactly how I felt. And you realize Not to take anything away from the table. It's just that I had put it in such a mystified pedestal way because I was a kid from the country that I realized that what I had to offer was just as valuable. 
Where in the country were you, like where where were you raised? <laughs> Outskirts of Bakersfield. Bakersfield. I love it. So I remember getting lost in Bakersfield once. A lot of good people come from Bakersfield though. I feel like there's so many people I talk to that are from Bakersfield that are like very successful, strong. I wonder if there's something in that drive of wanting a shift or a change. I feel like it has in a lot of ways a Midwestern sensibility that's different from, you know, Northern and Southern California. Um, but I, there are some amazing people from Bakersfield. It's not my preferred choice to live, but you know, it, there are some great people and very motivated, driven people. A lot of my friends that I grew up with since grade school, um, have very, very interesting and successful lives. So when you came out to, I mean, so you came to LA, did you automatically go to LA from Bakersfield? It seems pretty logical. Or did you go somewhere in between? I did because of college. I went to UCLA and then I stayed once I was, yeah. So when you started this career in marketing and you, it really was until you were at the table where you're like, oh, I deserve to be at this table. It took a long time. I mean, it was interesting because I was at an interesting time where I got into digital marketing at a time where it was new. And that sort of leapfrogged me each year. I got promoted much faster than my colleagues set by the nature of my work and its yeah. uh, growing demand. And so... I would say for many years, each year I got promoted. Um, and I think what happened was I got promoted faster than I had a business maturity or maybe even an emotional maturity. And the expectation of each promotion, um, there was an imbalance because I didn't have that the same, the same years to mature on the, emotional and personal front. And I became lopsided. I became very, very career focused. And I forgot about me and detached me. And I sort of took on a persona that um, I thought would help me in business that wasn't exactly who I was, to be honest. So what would that persona look like? It was a little more extroverted it was a little more um, unboundaried. Sure, I'll take it on. Yes, I can get this done. You need this by tomorrow? No problem. You know, it was a little bit more um, just agreeable. I, I, was, I just agreed to do everything all the time and be happy doing it. <laughs> and that's not who I am. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, very few people are. That's so interesting. So then talk about, so what year, when did you go on Revenge Body? Was that last year or the year before? It's been uh, two years. Two years. So the year before. So where, talk to me a little bit about like weight and how it played in your life. Like when you were in Bakersfield, like what kind of kid were you? When did you feel like you started taking on, let's say the emotional weight and the physical weight? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good um, segue because it was all related. My people pleasing started in childhood. And I think, you know, 
anyone could say was born out of self-worth issues. And the same thing sort of happened to me as a kid where I had a lot of expectations around athletics. Mm. Um, I had matured very quickly. I was very coordinated. Uh, my dad was a coach. Sports is big in the area. Um, and all the things sort of piled into, you know, we expect a lot from you. Um, and that meant, you know, playing four sports, club teams, um, expecting a college scholarship. And that sort of took over in a way that I didn't know how to manage and say, I need some space from that. And um, I think that part of my weight gain was a, a passive aggressive way to make that not as much of a focus for me. So like if you could go back and do it all, did you like playing sports at all? I sure did, yeah. But there's a difference between liking playing it and then everyone deciding that's your future. You know, I had high school and college scouts watch me in junior high. And I had, I just felt like a lot was riding on my shoulders that a lot of people wanted to see me succeed. And as a kid, you don't quite understand that. You're kind of like, why is this such a big deal? And, you know, I had a schedule that was, you know, before high school, I had drills. At lunch, I had drills. One of my coaches who was a teacher would weigh me. You know, I had a lot of attention on me. On, on, on me. Yeah. And, and and so, you know, because I didn't have the language to self-advocate and say, I'd love to play, you know, two sports, not four sports. I'd love to play, but not have a weekend and morning extra <laughs> practice schedule. You know, like I didn't know how to navigate it in a way that, that kept me feeling in charge of myself. And I think that in a self-soothe, I think the food started off self-soothing, but then when I noticed when I gained weight, there were less expectations around me. Oh. I think, it, I think it was a way out and it became sort of a pattern. Now, was it ever two things? What were your sports? My, my major focus was basketball, but I also played volleyball, tennis, and softball. You did play a lot. Um, when you gained weight, though, with your dad, what did that do? Because you say it took the expectations away. There was never those moments like more pushing, like kind of what's happening, what are you doing type of thing, or no? There was constant attention on my weight. I mean, it started in the fourth grade where um, – you know, my parents who were very, very, they were trying to help, but you know, I wasn't an adult Weight Watchers in the fourth grade. So I had, at a separate pantry than my family. Like I could kind of go on and on. They, they wanted to help me. And what was happening is I was a kid who matured very fast, who went through puberty very fast. And I think if I would have just kept playing the sports, it just would have normalized. 
but there was such a hyper focus on keeping me at a, at a, uh, I don't know what to call it, a normal weight that, that, that attention just was a lot to handle because I didn't feel like anything was wrong with me. And so I always was sort of assessed by how I looked always. Can I ask a question? What, how do you recommend, because I think what you said was really interesting. It's like, you're trying to, your parents were trying to help. What would you do if you had a child who was, I mean, were you over, I mean, I don't know what it was. At yeah, that no, I was, a, I was, I think overweight at, in different stages. It's a really good question. I mean, it's a question. I'm a mother now. And, and I think that what I try to do is focus on healthy and balanced choices and focus on how your body's feeling and how your mind's feeling and never focus on good or bad foods and never focus on appearance or body, but how you feel in the context of the choices you're making. Because like it, whether it's food or whether it's behaviors, you know, it's the cause effect to everything in life. And so you make a choice and is there a positive feeling or a negative feeling? And it's up to you to monitor those decisions. And I think, I think bringing a consciousness to how I felt without it being in the context of you need to be a certain weight would have helped me understood my sensitivity, my feelings. And that may have opened up communication around other ways that I felt. I didn't know how to process or language that the pressure felt too much. But I think right. when you start bringing a, a mind-body awareness to the cause and effect of decisions or how ideas make you feel, anytime you can have a feedback loop of that processing with someone, with a child especially, and teach them how to put language to a feeling, even if it's a color, even if it's a number from one to 10, I think those types of tools that are now, you know, much more widely um, known, <laughs> you know, my, my gener when I grew up, there just wasn't those sort of tools. And so I, I now know that there's always a feeling behind any behavior. And I just didn't know how to access that when I was younger. That's, I mean, that's so true. And really, it is a tricky thing with kids because it's funny that you're like, we're just trying to help. But I guess, yes, teaching kids just awareness is helpful. Do you, are both, I know your dad has passed. Yes. Um, alive? My mother's alive, yeah. Now, did you have a chance like ever have these conversations with either of them about kind of like do they did they did your dad ever know or does your mom know how you felt as a child I'm not sure they know the full extent um you know my mom and I have a, have a good relationship um I think every person um, and I think especially women battle with body image in their own, their own ideas. <laughs> and, 
you know, you just have to be really careful about projecting. And I think my mother was born of a time where restriction was a really common modality. And we have a completely different physical makeup. She, you know, is 5'5". I'm 5'10". I have my father's genes. Um, she has a much different frame. She she wasn't athletic like I was. And so there was like a different need set and, and a different how she took care of her body was very different than the needs of my body. And I think that um, what I've learned is, you know, the intention behind how they communicated and trying to help me was really good. For me at the time, there wasn't a match on the intention and the result. And I had to sort of take that intention and then figure out how to serve myself later in life. But, you know, their, their intention was in the right place. So how it is so compared like we're both parents and you were saying, yeah. don't you, how often are you like, how am I fucking up my child? <laughs> I, I all the time. I was like, Oh man, I just said it like that. Should I have said it this way? Because now, I mean, it's so funny. You realize, but I do ultimately feel like part of the fucking up of your children is exactly what's supposed to happen. So that your kid, I mean, not to let myself off the hook. That's not it at all. But I do feel like, like you were saying, there's certain things we're supposed to learn and you, and the parameters, everything is set up that way for you to learn it. Yeah. Doesn't always mean it's fun or great or. Right. Easy. Right. Right. Um, so, so then when you lost all this weight, how, what was your mom, like what's, what's your relationship with your mom through body issues now? You know, she's 79, I'm 47 and you know, she wants me to be happy. You know, I think she's really proud of some of the choices I've made. And I think she's sort of in awe and watching me. I, I'm, even though I've lost a lot of weight, I'm still not a small girl, you know? And so I think that, that she sees me moving. She sees me fit. She sees me happier and less pain, more energy, and she's really, really proud of that. And she sees how much effort it's taken, you know? Um, and what's amazing is she never exercised when I was growing up. And now she goes to the gym very regularly. And, and she has a, and to be honest, I think she's the fittest she's ever been in her life. So I don't, we're sort of kind of motivating each other. And it's not about, how we look. And I think that that's where the shift has been. It's, it's, it's how do you feel? And is this serving your health? Not how do you look? So talk about that for us. Talk about the, is there a breaking point? What was a point to you that felt like, or were you always trying to get a hold of it? Like, was there, were you trying to shift? Like, tell me a little bit of the mindset and then what helped you actually make the real changes? Yeah. So I was always an athlete and, you know, I think I would, con I didn't consider myself a, a normal, morbidly obese woman. You know, I 
was active. I was yoga certified. I'd go ocean swimming. I dated. I, you know, I, I was a professional. So it's in a lot of ways I didn't associate with how large I was. You know, at my highest, I was 385 pounds. And that's for most of my life. And I, you know, I had to go in a boardroom and present to Tom Cruise and I had to turn it on and, and not consider that I was that weight to deliver the sort of impact I wanted. So I had some sort of detachment body dysmorphia, but there were many times where I said, I'm going to take this on, I'm going to tackle it. And many times I'd say four or five times, I lost a hundred pounds and then I would, yeah. And that's no, that's a significant feat. <laughs> it's significant. It's significant. But then I gained it back and then, you know, I gained it back in more. And so a lot of, a lot of what you have to, like I constantly every day say, thank you body for what I've put you through because it's not, it's not normal to have those fluctuations, you know? And, and so what happened was I got to, you know, I went through, as all of us do, a series of different um, life crises and traumas. And one was a long caretaking with my father who passed. Right after that, my husband left sort of unexpectedly. Um, Right after that, I started a big new job in a role that I'd never had before, like two days after <laughs> the funeral and my and my husband left. And so all of these things sort of, you know, would, when you're on your bathroom floor crying <laughs> and you're saying, what do I really want for my life? I, I sort of had an eye-opening moment that for me – at that time, I really thought it was about being a mother. And that's when I went on the journey um, to adopt my daughter. But by, you know, but because I had all of this sort of hangover body issues coupled with life tragedy that I didn't fully process, I continued to put on weight. And when she was about six, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, mom, can you lose weight? And I had always thought because I didn't consider myself as big as I was, I always thought I was sort of shielding it from her, that it wasn't impacting our life. And she had shared with me that some of her schoolmates would make fun of me when I came to school and you know, things that kind of break your heart. And so... <laughs> hard, not only, I'm curious, was that hard not only because obviously you never want your daughter to go through that stuff, but yeah. as a human, you've put on the shield that it's like, I know I'm big, but you're wearing it differently. It's like you've convinced yourself. Exactly, exactly. Oh. And people would always say, oh, I don't, you don't look like you're that big. You know, I would get all these comments, you know. So when you hear, and of course, like it's what we were talking about before this conversation, like the kids. <laughs> so when you hear the kids saying that, 
does that pierce you also personally in a way of like it ruins the bubble that you've kind of been in? It's not even like, yes, it's about your daughter, but also I'm wondering personally how that felt. Oh yeah. It personally was devastating. I mean, I, like I said, I, I think I had a very atypical experience of a fat person, especially in LA. I, I had never been confronted or made fun of or called out or humiliated. I almost, it, you know, I almost had forgotten because I had been an athlete for so long. I almost forgotten how people were seeing me. And it was, it was almost like I had been found out that the lie that I was wearing, that everything was okay and that no one could see it. I had been seen in a way that I had tried so hard for no one to see me as. And, 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 and she confirmed that. And so when you ask me what was the decision or why, you know, sometimes you will do things for your children that you won't do for yourself. And I made a decision that, that that was something that I needed to do. And it hasn't been easy and it's been sort of up and down, but I've, I've been committed to continuing. I haven't stopped. What do you think changed it? Because you said you lost 100 pounds at a time. So what do you think has helped you? Is it just the conversation with her or have you gone about it in a different way? I went about it in a different way. Um, You know, and anyone who's gone through a lifetime of weight issues has tried typically a lot of different, um, a, diff- a lot of different things to lose weight. I, I did a few things. I surrendered and realized that I didn't know what I didn't know. And I became resourced. I became part of the weight loss program at Cedar sinai I b- went back to therapy. I, got a um, nutritionalist, you know, I just decided that I had to throw up my hands and say my way of powering through. And that's part of what I did. I'm here's, here's one thing about me. I can warrior through anything, but then I just had to realize this, this is a new way. This isn't about fighting it through. It's about letting go through it and having other people help me. And I had to make that shift, um, which is hard because the most important thing for that shift is vulnerability. And that's not something I had really accessed or offered to anyone, you know? And so I, I just found a lot of people who were experts that I thought suited my personality and my experience and I listen to them. So being vulnerable, and it sounds like I get it. You are a warrior. You're someone who's always just plowed through. Do you remember being vulnerable for the first time? Like, do you remember feeling it? Do you remember any moments of like, Oh shit, this is. This is yeah. Different. Yeah. One of the most pivotal moments was when my nutritionalist, his name is Dr. Phil Golia. He said to me, Amy, you seem to value 
um, character. You seem to be a woman of great integrity. You seem to tell me about how you want a mother, how you want to lead, how you want to be a friend. He's like, can I ask you, why are you not applying that same level of integrity to your self-care in your life? And that was like, oh, like knife to the heart because it was also, I had realized I had been not fully integrated in my value set and that I was compartmentalizing myself outside of everything else that I seemed to value, which would never work. It's only when I could put myself front and center and apply my value self to myself that it would extend into the, you know, ancillary areas of my life. And that for me was an aha moment that greatly changed how I approached everything before that had been a game. Can I get down three pounds this week? Can I, like, it was all a game. Can I, can I have this cookie and still be a calorie deficit? You know, I was always sort of like gaming a system. And then when he put the idea of me committing to integrity and self-care it became a different way in how I viewed each choice. So can you give an example of like how you then changed to view choices differently? So as it relates to food, it would be you know, if you if you tell me that you want to be energetic and and thoughtful and full of energy, then make your meal the night before, bring your lunch and don't wait until one or two to have food for the day and then overeat. You know, I had sort of been in just this game, like I, I heavily restrict and then heavily eat. And it became sort of this shame cycle that wasn't in accordance with how I wanted to get through my day. I would never go to a meeting unprepared, you know, so why would I go to my day without feeling myself properly, you know? And even as it related to um, exercise, I was always exercising for exhaustion and for, for calorie, um, to get the most calorie bang, right? And uh, my trainer, Gunnar Peterson said, Amy, do, don't do one thing you don't love doing. I don't, want, I, I don't want any of this if you don't love doing it because then you won't do it for the rest of your life. And that got me into trying things I'd never tried. I got very much into boxing and that became a really amazing outlet for me. Um, I love, you know, heated spin and that became a thing for me. But I... I don't love walking or jogging. And so those things I was doing before because I just thought you should do them mm -hmm. and I hated doing it. But now that I've shifted into things that I love, it's become, it's sort of becomes a part of my personality thread and something that may, that fuels me rather than exhausts me. 
want to make sure you guys are taking advantage of this opportunity with denanywhere.com, a monthly subscription for only $29.99 where you can take all live classes with us any time of day and archive classes. So if the times of days don't work for you, the classes are archived and you can go back and take them then as well or take your favorites over and over and over again. Plus, if you're looking for certifications or challenges or workshops, anything, we have so much on denanywhere.com and we do virtual workshops every single week. So please join us. You can join us from anywhere in the world. That's what's amazing. Let's keep growing this community and we love that now our community can grow past Los Angeles. We'll see you at denanywhere.com. Sorry for the interruption, guys, but I want to talk about this amazing course that's coming up. It is a happiness course, and it starts October 1st, and it goes for seven Thursdays in a row. It's with Jamie Wozni teaching, and during this time, I think we could all use some in-depth happiness. So again, seven weeks in a row, starting Thursday, October 1st at 6 p.m. Again, that's 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, but you can be anywhere in the world to take this. It is virtual. It is through denanywhere.com. So wherever you are in the world, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Thursdays, join us. Go to denanywhere.com to sign up. Okay, we've got a cool opportunity for you guys. You know I'm not a huge makeup wearer, um, pretty much makeup free a lot. So when I do wear it, I'm very picky and very specific. I'm obsessed with Thrive Cosmetics for a couple of reasons. A, they're vegan and cruelty free. They're Leaping Bunny and PETA certified, so you know they're not messing around. All their ingredients are completely natural and they're clinically proven to highlight your best features, which frankly is exactly what I want if I'm going to be wearing makeup. So they're paraben, sulfate, and phthalate free, which is huge because as you know, we do a lot of podcasts episodes about this. There's so much hidden stuff in everything we use and put in our bodies and on our bodies. So that's why I love this. So one of the things I wear the most is their mascara. Um, Sometimes I just wear mascara because it just changes everything. If you see all these people with these fake lashes and you're like, how can I have that without doing that? This is perfect. (laughs) This mascara is amazing. You put so little on and it's incredible. It even won Glamour's Best Clean Beauty product, Best Mascara of 2020. So it's incredible. Again, totally natural. You guys know I always look natural. I don't like to wear a lot of makeup at all. So if and when I do, it is Thrive Cosmetics. So here's where it's fun for you. 15% off for you guys from anything there. So you go to thrivecosmetics.com slash Dentox. And that's how you get your 15% off. So you have to do that slash Dentox. But let me point out, it's Thrive's Cosmetics. Cosmetics is spelled C-A-U-S-E, like a cause, because they donate money and product to women every time you buy something, which is why I love it even more. So remember that Thrive Cosmetics, cause spelled like a cause, thrivecosmetics.com backslash Dentox, and you get 15% off. You guys, they're amazing. They're not only changing the world, they make us look amazing and it's good for our skin. I feel like that's such an important distinction that so many people don't realize. Like with anything, there's a million ways to go at pretty much everything. So like, I mean, I think exercise is a perfect example there's so many options. So like find what works for you. So like you said, so you're more apt to continue to do it. So for some people it's, you know, you were an athlete, you get it. I, you know, I, I was not like you, I don't think, but very athletic growing up too. And I remember there was a shift for me that I really liked. And if anything, weirdly weight was easier for me to never have an issue. And lucky for me, it switched early where when I was done with college and I wasn't competing, I wasn't like on a team anymore. I went through a period of like not, well, I don't really exercise as much, but like everything kind of stopped because it was this feeling in my head of like, well, if I'm not training for something, 
what's the point? Like, cause I used to have to go in the gym to be stronger on the fields or like, you know, that you, I mean, there's like this mentality of run my, my mile so I can be faster on the field and do this. And then it switched. Then I did nothing cause I wasn't training for anything. And I kind of loved it. Like you probably felt that break of like yeah. being attached to anything. And then I remember like, I, and I still feel like I'm searching for it, but when I do stuff, the competitive part of me has gone away, which I love. Like, I remember the first time I learned to spin and it was a while ago, it was before Soul Cycle existed. And I remember being like, wait, how, how do you do this? Like, how do you sit on the side? I mean, it's weird the first time you do it. Yeah. And I remember being like, it doesn't matter. I can sit on this the whole entire time. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. Like, I remember starting to do new things. Like for me, that was the shift of like, I don't have to be the best at this. I don't have to win the game. I don't have to, nobody knows me. Nobody cares. Like just do what feels good so that you're more apt to come back and do it again. Cause if you get your ass out of the saddle the entire time, not knowing what you're doing, you're probably going to end up hating it and not doing it again. You know what I mean? So it's kind of that same idea of like, why don't you try and enjoy being out here and doing this versus making it such a competition? That was huge for me because I, I kept that competitive mindset too long and my body couldn't live up to that. And it would, it just made me feel bad. So it wasn't until the shift and, and giving myself permission to experience um, the newness and, and the non-competitive side of it that I started actually liking it. So I think that's a really big deal for a lot of people. And I have to be honest, a lot of my friends, you know, they're like, I'm interested in it, but I don't want to go because I don't think I can do it. Or, you know, and a lot of people hold themselves back because there's an expectation of what they should be right off the bat. And, you know, that's, that's what is, that's what's sad. And, and to be honest, that's part of the reason I decided to go on Revenge Body is to bring a different type of multi-dimensionality to women, especially executive women, that, that you can have parts of your life in order, and then you can have other parts of your life that you're in deep growth in, and that you're trying to, that you're struggling. I think for women, that's huge. I love that you just said that because I think for women more than men, because men in some ways have been allowed to carve out different versions of themselves. And I think with women, especially, you know, once it was like women go to work, we want, it's become this balance of like, how do you have it all? Can you have it all? What does that look like? And usually anyone who is trying to do a version of it all and you were a single mom, right? Um, so you're really in it. It's not all perfect and easy and you're not going to be succeeding at all of it at the same time but it's you still feel like because you have this go go winner competitive personality that you should be you should be succeeding at all of it all the time and i feel like just the awareness of you know there's only so much pie you know like there's almost so much energy there's only so much and you have to figure out ways to balance it and when you i think when you go in and out of different things and be okay with that but right. it's okay with the not being perfect at all the parts yeah it, it, it's scaring because it's almost expected and celebrated with men 
you know, people say, oh, you're, he's great at this, but he's not good at this. There's just a very quick acceptance. Whereas with women, I noticed there's, there is more of a expectation to be good at everything or they're blaming aspects of their other part of their life. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty nervous to, well, there's the vulnerability of showing what you're struggling with, but then there's taking a focus, a big focus into your personal life and having others think, okay, you can't deliver on your professional side as you're going through this. Ah, interesting. And, and what I, and by the way, I felt the same way. I thought, okay, I'm going to have to sort of compromise, lean on team members, set the bar a little lower. And it actually was the opposite. The more boundaried I was and the more I focused on myself, the more I was effective in business. And I think it actually helped everyone around me, including myself to witness that. Because that was not my hypothesis before I, I started. But isn't that interesting? Because that's a little bit what we're going through now. I, I, you know, it's the restructuring exactly. of one does business, the restructuring of being at home versus having to be somewhere, you know, people sharing schedules when you're on, when you're off. I feel like it's a bigger version of, you know, the universe telling us that we can all do this differently and letting other people who might have, like you said, had a different hypothesis or a structure in their mind that was the only way are now kind of being proven. Because it's I talk to like a lot of people who, you know, work more traditional corporate jobs. And it's like, when this is over, whenever that is, will it going back be back to exactly the same? I don't know. Because I think now everyone at every level is kind of aware how you can be effective in different ways. And so a million percent. A yeah, million percent. You realized it through going through this huge transformation while being filmed. How long was the whole thing that you, like, how long was it for you? About five months. It's a long time. Yeah. That's amazing. And would the cameras go to work with you as well? No, they're really efficient. You know, there's about six to seven film days and then the rest are self blogging. Um, but, but it was a, you know, that show in particular is only 23 minutes of airtime each person. So they sort of fast forward, but the commitment to working out every day, um, is a big one. It's, you know, it's, it's a, and I was with a celebrity trainer, Gunnar Peterson, who's amazing and the very best, but his schedule was such because he's also a trainer for the Lakers that we didn't have a set time and it wasn't before work. And it could be like, come tomorrow at two, come tomorrow at 10, come tomorrow at seven. And so coming from a single mom who's trying to plan her day, that sort of spontaneity uh, was really chaotic for me mentally but then there was something that happened sort of midway through that made me realize it's all going to be okay if you're not at that meeting it's going to be okay if you know and it taught me to be more flexible and um and just kind of in in knowingness 
that I'd get through it. Well, don't you think it's interesting because especially as a, from what you say, I, I kind of get, I feel like I relate a bit, a little bit to this lack of like self-care um, in different ways, but especially as a woman, you were, you know, high, high in your world. So you're expected to do certain things. Like you said, you're a mom. Don't you feel like how easy it is for us to put a million excuses in, which seem very legitimate of like, well, how am I supposed to have time? Because I have to prepare for this meeting while also getting my daughter to school. And then I have to go to that meeting and then there's this, and then I have to show up for these drinks or whatever. I mean, I'm making shit up, but obviously it's like all these things that are must. And then I have to pick up my daughter to go get whatever it is. There's all these musts. And next thing you know, you're 24 hours is over. So where in the world could you possibly have put time for you to go to the gym and for you to do that? And it's all real and legitimate. And so then also, right. And then when you're put in this situation where you committed, so you have to let this guy be a lunatic and just tell you to show up, which would drive me crazy too. I'd be like, what? I have a schedule. What's wrong with you? Um, in a weird way, again, that was exactly what you needed to shake it up. Like, no, you know, you can actually tell people that that's not happening. So I can have time for myself. What an amazing gift. It was amazing. And I wouldn't have done it if I assumed they knew my situation. I assumed I would have an early morning workout. Yeah. That that, I just assumed I had, I known it, that it was going to be whenever or thought it through, I probably would have said, no way that wouldn't work for me. But it was honestly the biggest gift because it made me realize that, that we are just limiting ourselves, that there's always a solution, that there's always a different way, even when we think there's not. And, you know, yeah, I had to make some life changes. I had to, you know, you say that again, because I think that is so important, especially with everything that's going on right now. What did you say? We are limiting ourselves. There's always a way to do something different, even when you think there's not. Even when you think there's not. Even when you know there's no way. I talk to people all the what time. I, I can't change this. No, I can't. And what I've, what I've taught myself is to say, devil's advocate, you know, what if you got a caretaker in the mornings when you didn't have one before? What if you extended your lunch time from a half an hour to an hour and a half to accommodate self-care? What if you scheduled no meetings after three as standard practice to have, to have a breather before you went home for family time? Like just keep asking yourself the what ifs and there will be space there that you could have never imagined before. And in that space is the steps for personal fulfillment. I really believe that. That's amazing. What is, so in a weird way, yes, he was your trainer and yes, he probably taught you how to get physically fit and make you fall in love with all that stuff again. But it almost feels like that was the best lesson he gave you. He did. And when I think about his training style as well, I did not do the same um, activity or, or training two times. Everything was unique. And so for me, I'm a control person. I want to say today I can bench this. 
you know, next month I can bench this. I want to see progress. And he took all of that, all, cause all I, I had been living in a results driven world. Like I told you in the beginning, I'm evidence-based, I'm results-based. And he tried to take all of that away and focus on process and focus on, you don't know what's going to happen and you have to trust me and you have to surrender. So whether it was the schedule or what I was doing for my body. And I have to tell you, it was disorienting. It was frustrating. I felt very low often because I didn't know how to pace myself or my body. I didn't know what to expect. But there is something that happens when you totally have to let go and and not control that it really it really opens you up in a way that you can see what's possible. And that's what this trainer did for me is that, that he, he did something that was against every part of my controlled personality to show me what letting go could actually give me. It's amazing. Cause I, the idea of not having any, you know, like you said, result base, it within working out is pretty awesome because you're right. If you're not doing something twice, you don't feel like you're ever getting better at anything. So you always feel like you're the loser starting from the beginning. That's how but, I always felt. But I think that's great in some ways. Wow. That's amazing. So what was your lowest point of the whole journey? You know, I was the oldest um, participant on the show by a lot of years, and they were really sort of questioning in the beginning if I was going to be the right sort of match for this show and for the audience. And a lot of people want to be a part of it. It's a it's a kind of a chance in a lifetime to be matched with people to support you. And so I had decided I've they've chosen me. I've committed. I'm going to do everything by the book. And so, you know, I went to bed when they said, <laughs> I, I, I ate the food they said, I drank the gallons of water they said. And the lowest point for me was like a month in, I hadn't really lost weight. And I mean, I didn't even have so much as a throat lozenge, you know, that was extra from what they told me to do. And I just thought, I, I just felt like I'm going to be failing myself, failing older women, failing, you know, and that was really hard for me because, you know, I compete, I wanted to see the results, and I was sticking true to the commitment. And what happened at the end was um, I didn't lose the most weight but I lost the, I changed my, my body fat composition the most of any of his other um, participants. And that was a huge, huge win for me. And it was also a really good learning experience because we all focus on weight so much. And, you know, my nutritionist said, I want you to weigh the most you can taking up the least amount of room. Mm. And, and that idea for me was also a shift that it's about lean muscle. It's about 
changing my measurements to be um, healthier measurements. And it's not about the scale. And that's what that experience also did for me was take my hyper obsession around weight and then the highs and lows and the body shame that come with weight fluctuation and focus on measurements and, and um, lean muscle and, and body fat. You weigh yourself a lot? No, I only measure myself now. I, I have such a tricky relationship with the scale that it can still send me in places I don't want to go. And so I, I measure myself every two months. Um, and that's how I keep accountable without becoming hyper focused. Yeah, that makes total sense. How is your daughter with you in the process while you're like whatever time and working and trying to keep it all down? It's been hard. You know, I think that it's one thing you to say to your mom, I want you to do this for us. And it's another thing as a child to understand what type of time commitment that's going to take. And, 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 you know, when I already worked a good amount of hours to then be gone additionally um, at different times, I think that that was really hard for us. And, and it was a sacrifice for the family in a lot of ways, but it did open the door for us doing some things that are more active together. And I ended up getting a trailer and a truck and, you know, we started camping together and we started doing more things that um, didn't involve going out to eat or ordering room service at a hotel. You know, I, I decided that, you know, just connecting my trailer and truck and, and setting up camp, you know, those are sorts of things that probably would have been too exhausting for me before getting healthier. And now these are things that, you know, nature is very regulating and, and having to work cooperatively with each other has been amazing. And so I think that, that there's rewards, but, but you, but, you know, there's more intensity around a single parent and an only child, you know, you, you really notice how the household is impacted when one person is gone, you know? So how was that for you? I mean, to backtrack a little bit. So you said your husband left unexpectedly after your dad passed. Do you feel yeah. like he was waiting for your dad? Because you said you were taking care of your dad. Do you feel like he was waiting for that period to end? Or Yeah, I, I think that that yeah. I don't know exactly, but I think that I considered it sort of a a life stage, a hard life stage, and he considered it too much and a, a different, something different than he wanted. So I'm not sure how planned his timing was or not, but, but for me, it was actually a gift because, because I had such a good relationship with my father. I had such clarity about the type of people I want, like the type of connection I wanted in my life. And so if that wasn't something that he could get through, then that probably wasn't going to work for me. So it was, it was a clarifying time. And it was in him going away that you realized you wanted to be a mom. It was the, it was really losing my dad. I think I, 
I wasn't sure I wanted to be a parent before that. And then I just thought with the absence of my dad that that familial connection I really wanted. And, and I didn't know that until I had lost my dad. And then how were you terrified at all to do it on your own? Or was this just another thing that you just knew you were going to be great at and you can get through because you are a warrior? Both. I wasn't ready for a partner. And I also knew I could depend on myself more than another person. That's how I felt at the time because I had gone through that. I just put a lot of trust in the situation. You know, the one thing my father left left me as a gift is he opened a metaphysical bookstore in Bakersfield when I was in the fourth grade. And so I had always been around ideas, philosophies, people um, that gave me a perspective that there, that things could work out, that there would be a, a higher calling and, and that, my dad, you know, in his afterlife would protect me. These are things that felt natural to me. And so I had a dream about a child and I just felt so sure about the situation that I proceeded. That's amazing. I know. 12 years later. Right? But it was, it was terrifying. And, and, and it's, it's been the hardest thing in the world. And I think I was naive in, in that, you know, there's a reason for partnership and, and child rearing, and it does take a village. And so I think I was naive in that fact. And I have built your village. I have built my village because I think that's very needed for both her and myself. Right. That's incredible. Have you, and she's adopted and, and my daughter's adopted too. Are you, are you, does she know the birth parent? Like how? So, yeah. So, um, she knows everything, you know, I am a little bit conscious of sharing her story. Yes. Understood. Um, but I, we have, but I will say we have open dialogue. Um, we're, it, it's, a, it's a constant topic of sort of check-in and, and celebration and identity and communication. Um, but I'm very much um, a fan of, of revering, transparency and sort of revering her story. I get that. I totally get that. Around, were you always telling the story or would you do like drips and drabs to her so she would learn? I mean, because my daughter's, <laughs> so we're like, people always Yeah. Ask, no, that's a, really, that's a really good question. Um, I, I would say drips and drabs of age appropriate information. But the one thing I did when she was very young, um, say two, was to make almost a children's book of her story that um, she could keep in her bedroom and just refer to it. Um, And it includes 
everything about her story and also pictures, customs, cultural references, um, you know, how things smelled. Like I tried to appeal to the senses of the experience when she was little and, um, and, you know, one never knows. I, each child is so different with how and when they access and connect. But I have spotted her several times looking through that book. And she had a friend over just um, um, last fall. And I saw them in the front yard on a blanket with that book. And it made me smile. That's amazing. Don't you love when someone's like, is it working? Yeah. Or- See from afar, you're like, oh, it is working. <laughs> you never know. You never know. You never know. Well, this is amazing. I have four quick questions for you for four quick answers. We call them the four U's. Um, if there was one book that you feel like influenced you the most, what would it be? I think, I think just because I read Untamed recently, it's just sticking in my head. Um, Lennon Doyle. So many books at so many different times just meet the moment of your life. And this was, this was another reminder of your authentic fearlessness, you know, um, which I feel like I need as I approach the second half of my life. I love that favorite movie you've marketed. It probably has to be legally blonde. Yeah. It was sort of a standout movie for me in my in my contribution and it was an underdog movie and i i fought really hard for it and um but i've i've worked on so i've worked on over 300 i could go on and on but that was the first one i where i felt like my imprint was on it that's huge where what is what's your morning routine like when you first wake up what do you do So I'm a big fan of right off the bat meditating in the morning. And, and so that I do anywhere from five to 20 minutes. And that's a regular for me. Um, I then like to have a ritual of a coffee. I like to make my bed. I like to listen to podcasts. Um, but that's all sort of, um, I've learned to enjoy my morning routine, to not rush it, to to kind of use these sacred rituals as a way to ground myself. And that's also been new. That's, I would say in the last, you know, three years, that's something I developed. It was like, before that, it was like race out the door, you know, with a protein shake, <laughs> you know, it was like, but now I, I like to be intentional around the things I enjoy in the morning and I need to get centered around my mind, especially now, especially, you know, I struggle with uh, just mental health and keeping optimistic and keeping balanced as we approach the days and parenting and the uncertainness of the world we're in right now. So I, I, really, I really take that morning to prepare myself. What do you love most about yourself? Ah, that's a good question. I think my resiliency. I think that there's something very powerful to know that you're capable. That, and that takes a lot of fear. Like when we're all worried about 
losing things, whether it's your health or your income or whatever it is. I think we're all feel a threat on very primal levels right now. And what I know to be true is that I'm resilient and that makes me love myself. I love that. And I agree. I feel like there's something when you feel like you're going to be okay, no matter what, it takes away a lot of the fear. You're right. Funny you say that my husband's mom always like, that was her biggest compliment for me. She's so capable, like literally (laughs) use the words capable. That's what she uses for me. And I was like, capable, interesting. But like, that's what she used to say about me all the time. She's so capable. (laughs) I think that's a huge compliment. I'll take it. But it was really funny that you use those words because I'm like, that's what she said all the time. Um, this is amazing. And I'm think, oh, one work question. I'm curious with the COVID stuff. So you are already kind of in this world, like doing all the digital of it all. But how do you think it's going to be interesting with, I mean, so many movies now are launching, you know, digitally, they're not even going to the box office. So what do you feel in that sense, as far as like Trolls was kind of the first bigger one, right? To switch gears. So what do you feel like the future is looking like? So, you know, I choose to look at the future as a massive opportunity and one that is really uh, customer centric. You know, we have to give people options. And I believe that that means dynamic pricing, um, different sort of windowing strategies between in theater options and, and digital at home options. Um, but I think it's exciting. I think, you know, we're all trying to catch up to make the business model work for the finances so that, you know, especially the movies that I enjoy working on, which are sort of new IP, mid-range, new stories, fresh storytelling. We, we really need a place for those movies to be created now more than ever. We need, um, we need funding and we need model business models to make that work. And so I think the good news for the customer is that so many, whether it's uh, studios or streaming um, companies are putting massive amounts of attention and financing into content. I think that the challenge for, you know, for especially theatrical marketers and distributors is how to get more agile and how to use the opportunity and create new partnerships that, um, that, that work for both customers and for um, creators and, and the business of it. And I think that's possible. I think we are, we're only in the nascent stages of sort of figuring out what that can look like. Um, I think there's been probably a resistance to, to not change things. Um, but, but I think we're at the point where now people are jumping in with both feet and having conversations that need to happen. Does that make your job more interesting in some ways? I know from when I used to work in the business and I was on the development side, you know, sometimes you felt like you were banging your head up against the wall trying to get people to look at things differently, even though that's all they would preach is do it differently, do it differently, do it differently. And then you would do it differently and it was impossible. 
So do you feel like something like this that's kind of just shaken up globally, it's shaken up the world on how people are, you know, receiving and giving in some ways, does that make it more exciting for you? Do you feel like you can start making some? It makes it, it makes it very exciting for me. My nature has always been on the innovation side and I've chosen companies that for all intents and purposes are more, I'll call them disruptive to the category. And so for me, it's a win, win, win. Um, and, and, it, and I've always been heavy tech leaning. And so I think the convergence of all of this is really exciting. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Exactly. Trust the universe. Yeah, I love it. Well, this is amazing. Um, we always leave people with a personal practice, which is like either a quote or something you do regularly that you feel like could help other people or something to do. Um, so I would love to close with that, but I just want to say thank you so much because you're incredible and what an inspiration. And I feel like more than just losing weight, which is huge. So I don't want to take that away from you An inspiration. I feel like for how complicated people are, but especially women of this idea of, like you said earlier, you, it can look like you have it all together in one place, but it doesn't mean that those, that's how your personality behaves in this area is taking care of you in that area. And I feel like it's an inspiration to see how you can become whole. Thank you. Thank you. One thing that I want to leave you with that helps me every day is really simple. And, and a lot of people do these things, but to me, the combination of doing them in this order, um, which is to think deeply about what you're grateful for, to then give yourself permission for something for the day. And then what do you need to forgive, whether of yourself or others? And those three things for me, um, as I start my day, have been really healing. Um, you know, the, the gratitude, you know, can shift perspective. But the permission for me has been huge. And I also think this is more uniquely female. You know, are you per permitting yourself to go back to therapy? Are you permitting yourself to not do the five things on your to-do list? Are you permitting yourself to think bigger and actually spend the savings to go back to school? Like, what are the things that are, that are um, letting you unfold and release? And then the forgiveness for me has often been around myself. You know, anyone who is A-type, successful, um, and certainly any parent knows that you can be very, very hard on yourself all the time. And so reminding yourself that you need forgiveness, it has been something for me that um, gets, gets me out of a cycle of um, self-shame or negative self-talk. And so I just... I would recommend to everyone 
takes 30 seconds. And if you can make that part of your routine, I think it can drastically um, heighten your level of self-awareness for the day and, and give yourself sort of a mental check-in and where you're at. So that's what I would leave everyone with. Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.